In his song, Happy, Pharrell Williams proclaims, happiness is the truth. On Tribute to Happiness, we speak with guests who are putting this truth into practice, sharing their stories about what happens when happiness becomes a genuine focus. Tribute to Happiness is brought to you by Iceland's Chief Happiness Officer, Heather Svein Bjornsson. Hello and good morning. This is Iceland's Chief Happiness Officer. One does not get appointed as a nation's Chief Happiness Officer. It's a choice. It's a choice about how I want to serve my country and community, about addressing something critical that's missing in society. Listening and gratitude are things that are missing, especially in our work lives. Add those two things and positivity and productivity take off. Leave them out and work becomes routine, performance mediocre. Let's explore some new ideas and thinking about happiness at work. Let's also look at happiness at home and happiness. In this episode of Tribute to Happiness, we are talking to, I don't know why I say we are, because I'm alone, but we have an author in our midst, and he lives in the United States of America, and who is my guest today? So, um, I am Alex Pong, and I am the author of the books Rest, about uh, the role of rest in creative lives, and Shorter, about the global four-day week movement. Oh my. So, I have a double author, and how, how have the books uh, done? Are they successful, or are you climbing a mountain and struggling, or are you a struggling artist? Well, you know, all artists are struggling. Um, so, but I mean, I am I am certainly happy with the way the books have turned out, and they have, you know, they've they've had a far wider readership and sort of uh, than uh, you know than I had expected, and they've reached more people in more languages than I ever could have on my own. So, oh. you know, by those standards, I'm very pleased. Well, you have been published in Iceland, so that's that must be like uh, epiphany. <laughs> Exactly. No, I made I made the big time. Yes, the great book nation of Iceland. So, exactly. but but how how what have you been doing? Why are you writing like a book about rest and uh, creativity, and then the shorter? How how did you become this person? Right. So the book about rest, in a way, started. It's. It was an attempt to answer questions that I've actually been dealing with literally since my first day in college when in my first class, I, or freshman year, I walked into a seminar called Invention and Discovery in the Arts and Sciences. And it was about what it is, it was about the question, what makes people creative? You know, what accounts for sort of the, the lives of Leonardo or, you know, or Picasso or sort of Tchaikovsky or whoever. And so the, and so, you know, questions about the psychology of creativity, the kind of social environment that, uh, or cultural milieus that support it are things that I've been really interested in for a long time. Um, a few years ago when I had a sabbatical and was at uh, Microsoft Research Cambridge, I started thinking about this stuff again because I had my own epiphany about sort of the work that I was doing, which was that, you know, I was 
reading enormous amounts of stuff, writing well, having really great ideas. But I didn't feel the kind of time pressure that is just part of, you know, normal life here in Silicon Valley, where we're all rushing, we're all complaining or boasting about how overworked and stressed we are. And it made me think that maybe our assumptions about the relationship between work and time and creativity are actually backwards. That the assumption that in order to do good work, you've got to work ever longer hours which I think all of us have grown up with, was actually backwards, that we need to figure out ways of working that do a better job of balancing work and rest or work time and leisure that makes space for hobbies. And that, indeed, this was an answer to the question that I'd, you know, I had been posed decades ago about what it is that makes for creative lives. And that actually rest plays a really important role in helping us be more creative and having longer, more sustainable lives with richer insight. So that's why. And so, you know, rest, the book rest built upon that epiphany combined with a bunch of really interesting science around the psychology of creativity and sort of neuroscience and work on what they call the default mode network. Um, and then shorter was an attempt to show that the insights in rest or the insights about the importance of sort of uh, rest could be applied by organizations, right? They could be applied at scale, not just by privileged people who, you know, were university professors or successful authors, but these are things that could be used to enrich the lives of factory workers or nurses or sous chefs, as well as people who we regard as right, creatives or people who have a lot of control over their time. Um, so that's, that's how I came to sort of came to write these sort of write these books and do the work that I do now. But what is your, like you went from high school or, or college to university. What is, do you have to have a degree or are you, are you a computer scientist or a <laughs> psychologist or what, what are you? <laughs> right. Now my degrees. Um, so as an undergraduate, I studied uh, history of science uh -huh. and also did a bunch of work in corporate planning and sort of strategy, which was a subject I just kind of fell into at random because there was a professor I really liked. And then I did a PhD in history of science and working on uh, 19th century astronomical expeditions. Um, and then was on the academic job market for a few years. The academic job market is barely a market, but really is more like the Hunger Games or you know Battle Royale or Squid Games. Um, for It didn't kill me, but it did inspire me to go look elsewhere. And that got me into eventually corporate consulting where I was and working as a technology forecaster and strategist. Um, which I did for quite a long time before, you know, moving before become essentially becoming a writer full time, and wor and working with people to help design their own four day weeks, sort of at their own companies. So, are you the person that sees the future? You predict the future <laughs> in uh, <laughs> working environment. <laughs> uh, nobody, you know. No, um, the bad news is nobody can predict the future. The good news is we can all make the future. 
And so, you know, I think that the sort of what, I think what good futurists do is help, help their clients, help their readers see that they themselves have options, that they themselves have the ability to, or of, you know, to make choices about how the future is going to turn out and to be more aware of how they can go about, you know, sort of pushing the future in one direction versus another. So I don't predict, but um, I think, you know, I do something better. Yeah. So because I, I when you started talking about the futures and stuff, I started to think about Back to the Future when, when and how much of the film number, it was a, a number two, wasn't it? How much of the stuff he saw in the future how much of it is like at that time it was just like ha ah, yeah he a hoverboard right. and now now we have a hoverboard and but uh, something like that but okay the task at hand how can we use your things and 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 thoughtfulness about uh, shorter weekdays and mm-hmm. creativity because when you said Picasso I was just like, painters they were always drunk so they like <laughs> it does not matter like we are just thinking about writers aren't we they have to be well rested I think so <laughs> <laughs> so h- how can you see how can we combine shorter work week with happiness at work and and the like because what has happened is that from we from the early days of 1900 in the beginning of 1900 when the factories was and you worked and worked and worked and then today we have all this technology and that should help us and we could do more stuff and also whatever and now we are fighting burnout and tired like people are tired and stuff so so how can you how can we talk about a shorter work week combined with the happiness at work. So what you're pointing to is, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, it's the, the, the basic concept of you know, alienation of labor, right? Yeah. You know, Marx talks about how the factory system of uh, separated workers from sort of the, uh, from their final products or, or to de-skilled them in ways that, um, allowed capital to devalue individual jobs, but also made it harder for workers to see the value that they themselves contributed to either a labor process or to, you know, or to some finished goods. Um, and, you know, that this is, and this is something that we can see continuing with technologies throughout the 20th century and into the 21st, combined with other things like order of social media or things that have served to make workplaces uh, into carnivals of distraction rather than places where we can sort of really get stuff done. Um, Now, I think that sort of pushing back against this, uh, this process by short, by sort of shortening the work week actually does a lot to make for happier workers, more meaningful work and happier workplaces. And it does it for sort of, uh, sort of for a couple of reasons. And that, you know, what you see in sort of most, not, you know, in most uh, sort of most offices today is that people, uh, sort of people lose 
two to three hours of productive work time every day due to meetings that run too long, to distractions, to, you know, that, you know, the, the one quick question from a colleague that turns into a 10 minute conversation that throws you off task and, you know, therefore requires more time to kind of get back into something that you were working on. So if you can just deal with those things, you go a long way to being able to do five days worth of work in four. In a sense, the four-day week is already here. It's just that we've implemented, we know we implemented technology so poorly and sort of and sort of and managerial processes so thoughtlessly that we've buried those productivity gains underneath, you know. Uh, sort of underneath overly crowded schedules and sort of reactive reactive modes in the workplace. So what companies do is three big things, you know, sort of number one, they make meetings a lot shorter. That hour long all hands meeting turns into a, you know, five or 10 minute stand up just with the essential people in the room. They are a lot more thoughtful about how they use technologies um, and then finally, they redesign the workday to set aside periods of really deep focused work for, you know, in which people, uh, so that people can work on their, their most important tasks. And this is important both for improving productivity, giving people, you know, uninterrupted time to get stuff done. But it's also important psychologically, if you buy into Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow, and the argument that you know, a lot of sort of a lot of our happiness and personal satisfaction comes not when we are doing things that are explicitly pleasurable, right? Riding around in first class on you know, sort of going to some luxury destination, but rather real that uh, much of the real satisfaction in our lives comes from doing good work, you know, work that is personally satisfying work that we are good at work that gives something to the world and helps us uh, helps us feel like we have a place in the world and so you know redesigning the workday so that people are able to get into that state of flow is one way in which the shorter work week helps people to be happier at work another important way in which it does this is that Short places that implement shorter work weeks tend to devolve more responsibility down onto workers for figuring out how to make, you know, sort of how to solve problems and how to do that five days worth of work in four. No manager knows enough about the way about everybody else's job to redesign their sort of work for them. And so you really need to trust your people to figure out how they can work more effectively and more efficiently. So giving people more control at work is well known as sort of a source of job satisfaction and meaning. And the four day week uh, sort of of does that. The third and final thing that I think is really important is that along with greater autonomy, the four day week creates a kind of incentive structure or framework for greater cooperation and collaboration. Nobody can enjoy a four day week unless everybody can enjoy a four day week, right? In, in these places, I don't get to go home at the end of the day on Thursday and start my weekend if you still have sort of tasks to finish. And 
your ability to get your stuff done depends on my ability to work well with you, to respect your time, your need for attention, and and the collective necessity to or figure out how we can work in this new way. And so I think that those, you know, those three things, sort of the boosting flow, giving people more autonomy, and creating an incentive structure for more collaboration and cooperation in the workplace go a long way to making places that move to four-day weeks, not just more efficient, more productive, but also making them happier and making them places in which people have greater space to find meaning in their work and therefore to give themselves more meaningful lives. But when, when you started this journey, <clears throat> Uh, looking into the uh, work week and stuff, you mentioned in your book about Japan, South Korea, like they have to work is the the v- virtue and, and you work a lot and you are tired and stuff. And then you, you mentioned Marx, but what is it on your side of the pond? The, you have the liberal, like you have a totally opposite thing and, and the work structure in United States is just... I don't know where it came from. It is certainly nothing that we know of because we have unions and we take care of our staff. Uh, so, so you have job security and stuff. When you started this journey, did the leaders and people look at you like you were an alien and just like say, what? Because as I have gathered, uh, once upon a time, the people worked maybe 120 hours. And I uh, and and uh, the last thing the Danes they did they worked sixty hours a week and they cut it in, like down to thirty seven hours a week. So that has in a period of time. So mm-hmm. and that was in the seventies. So it's just right. when you started talking about this, did people look at you and say uh, the lunatic asylum is over there? Like how, <laughs> how did they perceive you? Like who are you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. And the answer is that, you know, when I started work on this, what, four or five years ago, um, you know, talking about four day weeks, really, it was a, it was a great way to get people to look at you like you, like you had grown a second head, <laughs> you, know, you know, here in Silicon Valley, we can talk about redesigning everything, right? You can talk about sort of quantum computing and sort of, you know, satellite internet everywhere and faster than light travel. But the idea of a four day week is like, whoa, this is like witchcraft. (laughs) And, you know, how could you possibly conceive of such a thing? However, you know, one of the really interesting and important things that's happened in the last two years is that the ground the ground has shifted in the conversation so that it's no longer just this absolutely insane idea that you can dismiss out of hand. Rather, there are still plenty of skeptics, but I think that the, but even among the skeptics, the attitude is not one of sort of dismissal, but one more of, you know, skepticism. It's not, this will never work. It's convince me that it'll work. And, they are more likely to be convinced. I think, of course, now after you know, two years where we've seen companies go remote, where we've seen, you know, where we've basically seen people and organizations reinventing work much more quickly than we ever thought possible. Yeah. The idea of you know, going from 
working in offices five days a week to going remote to hybrid work to flexible work in that kind of environment a four-day week no longer sounds like a completely crazy thing. I think it also seems a lot more attractive to people, given that we have we are all kind of thinking a little bit more about the place of work in our lives and sort of the value of time. And so the, you know, the, the, so, you know, the bottom line is that the four-day week has gone from something that seems completely nuts um, to something that is still unusual, but which... I think people can you know, appreciate, uh, you know, can understand and appreciate and be sort of, uh, you know, and be convinced of as something that is, uh, that is feasible, not just in, you know, Scandinavia or places that have really, you know, where that are famous for work-life balance, but here in America where, you know, we've constructed this combination of, you know, sort of the Puritan work ethic layered atop squid games, um, that even here, companies and individuals can, uh, you know, can begin to take it sort of ser- uh, can take it more seriously as something to invest in or sort of, and sort of to make part of the future of work. But we, we are talking about, because you mentioned it in your book, like we are not talking about, okay, we have this 40 hour uh, work uh, week, are we talking about 32 hours or are we talking about 30, 40 hours in four days period? Or mm-hmm. like we are, we are talking literally about taking some time off every day or however we, how you can collaborate with your employees about how we will do this. So, right. so, so th- that is up to the companies how they do it. Just yes. not cut the pay. <laughs> yeah. No, what I, I mean, you know, or, you know, companies for a long time have offered, um, you know, part-time work or, you know, prorated reductions for, let's say, working moms who want to just do three days a week, but they get paid for three days a week. And in a couple of places that have moved everyone to four-day weeks, they realized, you know, actually the people who were doing four days um, were just as productive and doing just as much work as the people who are in the office five days a week. And rather than seeing this as an opportunity to make a little extra money for the company, they saw this as something that was, you know, that, uh, that pointed to an innovation that they could give to everyone and an unjust situation that they could repair. I think that, you know, there are companies that offer four day weeks with 10 hour days. And there are places that are talking about uh, talking about reducing the work week in that manner. So in India, for example, there is legislation to um, permit four day weeks, but these would be without shortening, shortening the number of hours people work. So right now the work week is 48 hours long. And so that would mean people would have an option of working four 12 hour days which I think for the research tells us is kind of bonkers. Mm-hmm. The real, you know, the real challenge and the real reward though comes when you reduce the total number of hours that people actually are working per week. And in lots of places that's 32 hours because a three day weekend is an kind of a, you know, that's a really straightforward goal. It's very, you know, it's very clear. Everyone knows if you've, you know, sort of what it means and what the value is. But there are, you know, places that are also experimenting with other kinds of slightly shorter 
work weeks. So the United Arab Emirates, for example, this month moved public sector workers and schools to a four and a half day work week. So there, the work week ends Friday at noon. So everyone's got time for Friday afternoon prayers. And the weekend, the weekend starts Friday noon and goes Friday, you know, Saturday and Sunday. Um, and, you know, that's not, you know, obviously that's not a complete four-day week, but I think it's certainly a move in the right direction. And my sense, you know, this has only been on for a couple of weeks, but my sense is that once people get used to it, that, you know, uh, probably they'll start, you know, asking the question, you know, maybe we can just make this, maybe we can just take all of Friday off mm. um, and move everything to a four day week. And indeed one of the cities or one of the, you know, one of the, one of the Emirates, Sharjah has already done that, right? They've, they just said, you know, half day weeks, nobody gets anything done. Let's just kill off Fridays entirely. So one of the places has already done that. And I think probably the others, the others will do so. But the really interesting stuff, you know, the, the, or the model that offers the real benefits for people and the real benefits for companies are ones in which you keep salaries the same, but you reduce the total number of hours that people work rather than trying to compress the number, you know, sort of squeeze, squeeze the work into fewer days and thus make each day longer. Um, that's, you know, uh, sort of, uh, that is one in that case, you're just kind of moving blocks around on the calendar as opposed to sort of really sort of making, making everybody's lives better and making the company a better place to work. But how, how is it? Because you are, when you mentioned that you are in Silicon Valley, uh, computer companies, they are famous for their recreational, like they have ping pong tables <laughs> and they have game rooms and stuff. Because as of their theory, they say that if you can like stand up from a project and then you can take a ping pong game or whatever, then you're, you clear your head and then all of a sudden you just realize that, oh yes, I can do this. So what kind of companies does it matter what kind of companies where did it start did it start in the silicon valley or or has it spread to another that's that's a really good question and you know it i be, it started in um a couple places but all of them are industries where overwork is common where there's a lot of burnout and the tend to be, that ha, tend to have sort of smaller sort of uh, smaller companies so i first started seeing it in software startups in design firms or advertising agencies and interestingly in michelin starred restaurants right places like noma in copenhagen yeah. that you know, where you know that have waiting lists that are years long years long who really had the economic security to or of you know, do whatever they want right noma could be open one day a year and they would still have a long waiting list oh, so yes. for them the you know for them the risk of going to a four day week was much lower than it was for a place that was not recognized as the world's best restaurant five years running so you know, the fact that this is something that even in industries where people grow up sleeping under their desks and thinking they have to make great sacrifices can be, you know, sort of can happen is, I think, a really notable, uh, sort of notable fact. Since then, it has spread to lots of other industries. So, 
you're seeing, uh, I'm seeing it in uh, nursing homes for, or for, you know, or for nursing staff. I see it in factories, in their pest control companies in the United States, interestingly, that have moved to four day weeks, mainly thanks to scheduling software that, uh, because, you know, with pest control companies, you've got drivers who are driving around uh, different uh, different places and spraying for bugs and stuff. One of the big challenges traditionally has been that driving from point A to point B to C takes a lot of time and indeed, mathematicians have been struggling for years to solve what they call the traveling salesman problem. Mm -hmm. And this is not, and so, you know, this is a substantial optimization issue, even for very technical people. And in the last couple of years, there have been software to uh, sort of to optimize routing that has been so effective that pest control people can now get the same number you visit the same number of places in four days because their routes have become so much more efficient. And so, you know, it turns out that, you know, and I think that the reason that we're seeing this spread in all kinds of places is that, you know, number one, the kinds of pressures that you, that, you know, places like software companies first had to deal with, right? Burnout, issues of recruitment and retention, stress on sort of managers and you know, managers and founders, and a need to create environments that are more sustainable. These are things that everyone turns out to share, or certainly, certainly these days, everyone turns out to share. Second, that, you know, this started out in businesses that we, you know, that we explicitly recognize as creative, right? Chefs at top restaurants are highly, highly creative people, just as are, you know, game designers or people who work in, you know, advertising agencies. But it turns out that virtually all work is creative, right? If you are a nurse working in a nursing home, there's an awful lot of problem solving you have to do every single day in order to keep people healthy and happy. And I think that you know, virtually all the work that can be automated and given to a robot kind of has been. And so, you know, the work work that remains, even in places that we don't think of as creative, turns out sort of to be sort of to benefit from the same kinds of reductions that we've seen in sort of creative industries. Um, and then I think also that, you know, once you start seeing this happening in sort of, you know, in well-known industries or you start to see experiments like happened in Reykjavik and, you know, a few years ago, um, it really, you know, it does start to raise the question, well, you know, if they can do it in their industry, why can't we do it in ours? Um, so I think for all of those reasons, we're seeing, you know, sort of, uh, sort of we've seen it spread much farther than, you know, than I ever expected and into places where you might first imagine it would be impossible. You know, law firms are the one other example I'll toss out, right? In law firms, generally you bill by the hour. And so, you know, that should obviously, you know, that should obviously be the case that you would never work fewer hours in a law firm. But even there, it turns out to be possible to move to four day weeks to eliminate non-billable time um, or non-billable tasks and sort of, and to give people in a profession that in 
you know, in many, you know, in the U.S. and many European countries is famous for, you know, high rewards, but also extracting a very high price on people in their personal lives sort of more balanced lives that will allow them you know, to sort of to be better people and to practice better law. So long answer to a really simple question. <laughs> but so it, it literally means that leaders, they should be brave because the benefits are there, which right. takes us to the, the other two questions. And that okay. is the happiness in life and happiness at home question. Maybe we should take uh, happiness in life before because or happiness at home okay it's correlated or it's really related to each other sure but, but it is like how how people or yeah how they interact with the spouses and you are tired and you can't like when you're stressed at work and then you're stressed about the mortgages and like what ever you have the kids are sick or like in your case in the united states you don't have a health care or whatever okay luckily we don't have it like that problem is solved for us but but how does it affect people's life big question and we mm -hmm. are talking about happiness at the home and happiness in life so right. what have you discovered there so um the effect of a shorter work week on home life is clearly positive, right? Both for the obvious reasons, right? When you've got more time to, you know, to uh, sort of just to deal with life admin as, you know, as the, as the Brits call it, um, it's, you know, you are, uh, sort of, it becomes just logistically simpler to take kids to the doctor or to, you know, or to schedule the time for the repairman to come and fix the dishwasher. So, you know, I think that every listener can immediately see how having another day of the week in which they can schedule those kinds of things is good. It also turns out to be the case though, that when you give people more free time, they do disgustingly wholesome things with it. Um, you know, they do not take an extra day to go drinking. Instead, what they do is sort of with, with one tiny exception that I'll get to, um, they, spend it, you know, they get more exercise, they cook for themselves, they do stuff with family, they do, you know, they volunteer, they do stuff with their communities. As one person, you know, one person put it, you know, the people in my company take this extra day and they care. They care for themselves, they care for their families, they care for others. And that's what they do with the time. And so I think that, the, you know, the fact that you've got sort of both more time and kind of more psychological bandwidth to devote to or to give to others is, and that people tend to use it for that kind of pro-social behavior is, I think, a really, really positive thing. The one exception that I've seen was, um, was a Glasgow uh, company called Pursuit Marketing, and they implemented a four-day week a few years ago. And for the first month or so, even though the office officially was closed on Fridays, there were a few guys who were still coming in. They were making maybe one or two calls, and then they were disappearing for the rest of the day. And the managing director, after about a month, finally cornered one of them and got the story. And it was, these guys had not told their wives that they were now working a four-day week. <laughs> So they were meeting up and they were going to the pub and spending the day there. Um, so 
that didn't last past, you know, sort of, sort of that particular <laughs> arrangement, I think came to a swift end, but you know, the fact that even there, you know, they were sort of, they were, they were choosing to get together and, you know, and sort of spend the day to get, you know, sort of socializing, uh, you know, it's sort of, a, it has a, it has a particular Glaswegian twist to it, you know, but even there it's a, you know, sort of that ultimately is a nice story about pro-social behavior. So I think that's, you know, that's how it's, you know, it's a bit like experiments with universal basic income, right? Or of these experiments find when you give people money, they, t- they, it turns out they spend it on good things, right? They yeah. don't, you know, they don't buy Bitcoin so they can buy drugs. Um, you know, they use it to put down a deposit on an apartment or to pay down, you know, pay down credit cards. And likewise, when you give people more time, they, it turns out that they use it in ways that I think nobody could really disagree with. So you can't, can't, you can't not love the Scottish because they, they are the fab, like they are, they are great people. So, but, uh, but how is it like, it must align also with the book rest because the more rest you get, because I I loved it reading about the, the people in Japan when they have a long work day, then they have to socialize with the mm-hmm. colleagues and get drunk and karaoke and whatever. And then they maybe get four or five hours sleep, which calls out again for mistakes. Like, yeah. h- how is it that, why is it so like burnt into our brain that work is a virtue or, or whatever, how we can say it? Like, why is it that we are in this rot? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that the, sort of the, the, the sources of it are a little bit different uh, sort of in different places, you know, in real, I think that the, you know, the high level for the story in Japan and, you know, Japan and Korea that both have these cultures of long hours. And then you go out drinking with, you know, you don't leave work until the boss leaves and the boss never leaves unless they go drinking and you have to go drinking with them. Um, That this, you know, this goes back to having to do enormous amounts of labor to rebuild their economies after the war. And so, you know, there's, there are, uh, there were very, you know, the, the story in those places of people laboring enormously long hours in order to bring the country back to its feet. This is a very, very powerful narrative yeah. in both Japan and Korea. And so that's, you know, it's a, it, it, it's hard. It's hard when you have two generations who've grown up with that to imagine different ways of working or to imagine that backing away from that is anything other than kind of an insult to your ancestors. I think in the, you know, in the case of, you know, the United States and sort of, and the UK that we have seen in, you know, the finance and the technology industries for the last 30 or 40 years, endless stories about how people become overnight successes, you know, or become billionaires before they're 30 by working titanically long hours in, you know, sort of when the market is kind of, you know, is sort of is on a kind of upward path. And and the increasingly cyclical nature of sort of economic activity means that you really have to make hay while the sun shines. 
right? You, you know, you've got a narrow window in which your technical, your tech, your own particular technical skills or professional expertise align with favorable conditions in the market. So you've got, you know, so you've got a brief window in which you can make your billions. And that's what success looks like now. You know, it's not like in the 1950s in the United States where you had two men named Charlie Wilson who ran the two biggest companies in America, General Motors and General Electric, who had both worked their way up from the mailroom mm-hmm. in their companies. Right? Success used to be about starting at the bottom, paying your dues, you know, going up the ladder and finally reaching the top. It doesn't look like that any longer. And I think that sort of uh, that sort of between that model of success, between sort of a discovery that it's possible in in periods of economic uncertainty to extract more labor at lower wages out of people, that you can design you know design labor markets or algorithms that essentially take precarious work and turn it from something that is you know, kind of marginal or unfortunate a part of the economy into something that can make a small number of people billionaires. Those are very powerful incentives for sort of creating both the kind of economic or material conditions for overwork, but also a framework for justifying long hours as a necessary component of success. And indeed, when you, you know, when you talk to people in, you know, in four-day week companies, you talk to founders who make the decision to sort of move to four-day weeks. You hear a lot of you know a lot of struggle around sort of unlearning those lessons. Right? One of the one of the things that I've uh, that I've heard many times is you know, you've got to go from the idea that long hours are a sign that you're really devoted to your job and dedicated to the idea that. If you can do in four days what the competition can do in six, that doesn't mean that you're less dedicated than them. It means that you're more professional than them. It means that you know your job better than the guys who have to come in on Saturdays and Sundays. And that kind of, you know, and you're know, making those kinds of sort of mental reorientations, those changes in mindset, it's you know, that that is not an easy thing, particularly if you've grown up, you know, working and working a particular way and to us and to some degree, you've succeeded in that system. Being able to turn that around really takes effort, mm. but you know, it gets, you know, every time another company does it, every time another country or of, uh, you know, or of does it, it gets just a little bit easier for everybody else to imagine and I think that's what we've seen in the last couple of years as the four day week has gone from this, you know, insane idea to one that is, you know, that still sounds a little crazy, but is intriguing and is clearly working in some places. So in order to finish off, we have to talk about the man, Alex, and his happiness at work, his happiness at home and his happiness in life. So is <laughs> Alex the author of shorter is he does he work four days a week or <laughs> do i dare do what do you say if you <laughs> because um, how how is your life like how is your work life how how do you 
when I am, so when I am writing a book, I do all of the things that I talk about in rest, right? So, um, there is what you, what you see among super creative people when they have the freedom is that they will layer periods of really intensive work, like focused work of 90 minutes to two hours followed by lengthy breaks. And this is both good for getting your, uh, just allowing your brain to recover, but also giving your kind of subconscious a chance to work on things that you, that you haven't been able to solve you know, by, you know, sitting at the, sitting at the keyboard, but maybe your, you know, your mind can sort of, uh, can figure out while you're doing something else. Um, that kind of layering turns what is often a kind of random and mysterious process into something a little bit more predictable and turns it into something that can help you do better work. I also get up really early in the morning. I'm usually up and writing by about five or five thirty because oh there were, because if I'm up that early, I'm not going to distract myself with Twitter and Facebook. Uh-huh. Nobody else is awake. The dogs even aren't, you know, aren't even up. And so that's really clear time in which I can, I can get stuff done. Um, and <laughs> I'm just picturing so, the dog. I'm just picturing the dog when you go out of bed and it's just like, oh my. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. No, you do you. I'm going to stay here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What the, but basically, sort of to, to answer your question, I tend to work more like five-hour days than four-day weeks. The other reason that is is that I've got plenty of, you know, uh, I'm often talking to people in Asia or Australia or in Europe, so I have to do a little bit of time shifting. Uh. Um, and so that means the occasional stuff, you know, the occasional thing on a, you know, on a Saturday or a Sunday, but fun, but uh for me what works is for my uh, for my days to be shorter rather than for my weeks to be shorter and there are plenty of there actually are plenty of companies where you don't go to four day weeks but every let's say everyone moves to a six hour day let's say um so it's you know it's not as it's not as popular a popular a model but sort of it's one that works in some industries and it's one that works for me mm. so That's the answer. And the effect on your family, because you are a family man, and right. you have kids, you know, and, and, and ha, like, have, have you taught them to think correctly of shorter <laughs> week? Yeah, I'm tr- I certainly try. <laughs> and I think, you know, everybody has to learn this the hard way. Yeah. Right? I am always struck by, you know, these, like, Nobel Prize winners and incredibly intelligent people who come so close to completely burning themselves out. And that's what forces them to take a step back and to reassess how they work and to figure out how to work smarter. And I think in a way that this is, you know, it's, it just seems to be a fact of life that you can't, it's, it's a challenge to teach this to other people. It's more like they have to learn it for themselves. And, you know, I, and so my hope is my kids will, you know, will learn it faster than I, or put it into practice sooner in their lives than I did. But, you know, I think that the, the sort of the effect on family, you know, on a practical basis is that when you do, let's say a five hour workday, it does leave more time for dealing with the house, for yeah. taking kids places, you know, spending time with one spouse. And so I think in that respect, you know, the sketch, you know, I think 
uh, and my wife has finally, after years, learned to sleep through my waking up at five in the morning. Um, you know, once <laughs> yeah. she managed that adjustment, yeah, it's worked out. I think it's worked out pretty well for yeah. sort of, yeah, sort of for her too. Yeah. So, um, but I do, you know, but I think it, you know, it really is the case that uh, that for families having, you know, having those having those extra blocks of time really can make a gigantic difference, you know, not just in the quality of, you know, of your, the quality of the time that you spend or the amount of time and energy you have to devote to kids, but it also benefits spouses, even if they're not working four day weeks themselves. And mm. so I think it makes, you know, home life better and happier for everybody. Well, then, Alex and happiness in life. What what brings you joy and what brings you like, what makes you happy and and joyful and all that. Um, <coughs> for someone who keeps writing books about rest and shorter work weeks and stuff, this will sound strange. But the thing that uh, sort of that brings me the most joy outside of the very personal stuff, very personal family and relationship stuff is sort of doing good work. Um, and this is something that I, that, you know, I have discovered about myself that there are few things, maybe nothing that sort of I enjoy with such fierce pleasure as being able to write well, right? Being able to do, you know, being able to think through a tricky problem to explain it to other people. That is a source of enormous satisfaction to me. And sort of being, and having been lucky enough to craft a life in which I can spend a pretty fair amount of time doing that has been, you know, sort of an immense privilege. And I know that, I mean, that, that sounds a little weird, but there's actually, but, you know, Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, talks about, you know, the fact that, you know, meaning is not, the meaning of life and sort of happiness in life are not like these things that we discover like the Holy Grail, you know, they're things that we create yeah. all the time. And one of the great places in which we do that is in good work. And I had sort of a really powerful illustration of this last year. Um, my dad passed away. He was 84. He had lived through two wars. As he put it, he survived Japanese imperialism, two wars and outlasted the Trump administration. So <laughs> he felt, you know, sort of, he had done very well for himself. Yeah. He was a, he was a college professor. And in the last couple of months, he'd had cancer for several years it had gone into remission and it had come back with a vengeance and they decided, you know, it was time to stop treatment. Not much else was going to, going to work. The last couple of months of his life, he moved down to the basement that he had converted into a library. And this, and that's, and he had a little dressing room off to the side and that's where they set up the bed. And that's where he spent the last several weeks of his life right? In the company of his books and sort of the company of family. But it was, you know, to me, it was a really stark reminder of how, you know, this was a guy who, you know, who came to the States from Korea 
you know, sort of after after the Korean War, he had made a career for himself as a professor. He wrote probably, I think, 10 books. Um, you know, this was a guy for whom work mattered an awful lot. And, you know, not just in the kind of workaholic, you know, sort of, I can't think of anything else to do with my life kind of way. It mattered profoundly at a kind of psychological or sort of spiritual level. Um, I realized afterwards that we had, over the course of the 40 or so years that I'd been an, been an historian and writer, that there was hardly a conversation that the two of us had that was not about, that did not touch on either work or his grandchildren. Um, those were like the two things we always talked about. And the fact that, you know, nobody, I think it's, you know, it's a truism that nobody on their deathbed wishes they had spent more time in the office. But it is possible to derive a kind of sort of sense of meaning and sense of happiness from doing good work that I think we should not underestimate. And that the point, one of the points of doing things like four-day weeks and learning to incorporate rest into our lives is that these are strategies for helping us do better, sort of do do good work, good in the moral sense, in the sense of helping our lives be more balanced and meaningful, you know, sort of rather than being escapes from work. So um, yeah, so the guy who writes about work in the four day week is made most happy by doing good work. <laughs> yeah, so that, that great stuff from you and and. It's, uh, I'm so happy that I, I could finally get you because we start. I started talking to you in what in November, so it's it has yeah. been a a long birth of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but as we as I mentioned to you when we were preparing, uh, I have a challenge, and that is to say an Icelandic word. Okay. So it depends on. I have two, but I, I will start with the first one. If you do that well, I will take the other one because I, I need to laugh. I, I need to <laughs> get some fun out of it. I want you to say the word stitri. Stitri. Yes. Which means rest. Doesn't no, no shorter. it means shorter. shorter. Yes. Of yes. Course. No, so my, that, my that book is, be- is right here. Because your stitri. book. Yes, stitri. But okay, that went well. So I think I will choose another one for you. Okay. I think you should say Fjölbýlishús. Wait, because I did well the first time, I've yeah. got to do it again? <laughs> yeah, it was a short word. This is sort of, this is like the ideology. Now, now we see the violence inherent in the system. This is this is capitalism in action. Yeah. <laughs> Your reward for doing a good job at something yes. is to have to do something else. Okay, hit me again with the other word. Fjölbýlishús. Fjölbýlishús? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a big building where a lot of people lives, like in New York and stuff. Oh, so like a uh, like a big apartment building. Yes, Fjölbýlishús. Okay. Fjölbýlishús. Yeah. So break it. Th- so break it down for me. It's like uh, so fjöl. Fjölbýli. That is a place for, for for many. Okay. Fjöl er fjöldi, and bíli uh-huh. bíli is a housing, and okay. then a house. It's house. Okay. Okay, so a, it's a plural. Yeah, a place where a, a many sources. yeah, a place where okay. many many live. But Well, okay. <laughs> but Alex, it has been 
fantastic talking to you and I, I hope you because this was the easy one because I just had to say here is Alex you talk so <laughs> and I, I guess you are, are you are well trained so you did a good job on this so I, I oh, thank, thank you. you thank you very much and I what is your next project what will that be will that be longer or uh, <laughs> rest shorter bet or <laughs> you know the next book is whatever my agent is able to sell to a publisher but i am working on a proposal on um how to make work more meaningful Ooh, yeah i can't wait so yep so i can't i can't wait to i can't wait to sell it and start writing it so yes. Thank you very much, Alex, and and I hope you and your family will be stay safe, and uh, I hope we will get through this COVID, and so, who knows, you, we will probably, maybe we will meet sometimes. You never know. Let's hope. Yes. Let's hope. So, you can and you can teach me the or of the correct pronunciation of the Icelandic word for meaningful work. Then yes, then we can take that. <laughs> thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Take care. This has been the Tribute to Happiness podcast. Tune in for next week's episode. You'll find us on social media.